The following activity is brought to you by the American Urological Association. The American Urological Association is accredited by the Accreditation Council for Continuing Medical Education to provide continuing medical education for physicians. To learn how to claim CME credit for participation in this activity or to view faculty disclosures, please visit the AUA University at auau.auanet.org. This educational series is supported by independent educational grants from Estellas, AstraZeneca, Lanthius Medical Imaging, Merck, and Pfizer Incorporated. Good afternoon, my name is Jay Rahman and I'm professor of urology at Penn State Health and chair of the AUA's Office of Education. It's my pleasure to host this podcast, which is one of our AUA expert exchange series pertaining to GU cancers. Um, this specific podcast is talking about advances in immuno-oncology, specifically with regard to urothelial cancer. And it's really my pleasure to be joined by uh, two thought leaders in the field, Dr. Janet Kukreja and Dr. Sarah Sutka. Uh, Dr. Kukreja is a urologic oncologist and assistant professor of urology at the University of Colorado School of Medicine. And Dr. Sutka is a urologic oncologist as well and associate professor of urology at the University of Washington. Um, Janet and Sarah, uh, thank you so much uh, for joining. It's really uh, my pleasure to have you both um, on this uh, podcast. Thanks so much for inviting us, Jay. So um, obviously, you know, when we talk about immuno-oncology, it's, it's a domain that falls outside of what a lot of urologists or urology practices uh, manage regularly. And hopefully our goal here is to help people understand how can they incorporate this, how should they think about this in practice. And, and I think, you know, the most logical way is looking at what we do most often, which is sort of the diagnosis and management of non-muscle invasive bladder cancer. And so maybe I, I would start off with that um, in this sort of localized disease setting. And maybe if you guys could give me an impression of, you know, the whole story of BCG, BCG unresponsive cancer, and when do we start thinking about the use of immunotherapies in this realm? Definitely. Maybe I'll, I can start. Um, so, I mean, the original immunotherapy is BCG, right? We're, you, we're, we're weaponizing the body's own immune system with the objective of targeting these cancer cells and hopefully achieving a complete response that's durable. But we know that at least half patients are going to ultimately have recurrence of their cancer. The BCG will be unsuccessful. Um, the guidelines right now would suggest that it is reasonable and high risk, AUA high risk non-muscle invasive bladder cancer to re-induce um, and, and after an initial induction course of six uh, of six uh, courses, six cycles of BCG, if, if there is persistent disease, we can utilize another six cycles. But um, the technical definition or the clinical trial definition of BCG unresponsive disease is essentially some, we, I call it, we usually refer to sort of the five plus two rule, which is basically if someone has been exposed to at least five of the six uh, cycles in an induction course and at least two of three of uh, plans, maintenance 
round um, of uh, maintenance BCG, and then the cancer is identified again, then that patient technically meets um, the definition of BCG unresponsive bladder cancer. And of course, um, sometimes that happens early within the first within the first repeat cystoscopy or the first six months or the first year. And sometimes that happens later on. Um, and there's a little bit of judgment in terms of the, that process of reinduction of BCG. But at that, at, once we have a patient who clearly is unresponsive to BCG, I think that really opens up the, the whole um, question of what we do next. Um, and Janet and I have talked a lot about this <laughs> over the past couple of years um, as we've been thinking about how to better handle our patients with non-muscle invasive bladder cancer that is BCG unresponsive. And I think that thankfully today we have a lot more options than we had when both of us were in fellowship or even before then. Um, and in terms of the immunotherapy options, the the big trial that, that um, uh, sort of changed practice here was the um, uh, uh, checkpoint uh, was the was the trial that led to the approval of pembrolizumab in this setting. Um, I've been talking a lot, Janet. Do you want to take over for a little bit? We can flip back and forth. Sure. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, you know, the trial is the the keynote uh, 057, and this was looking at pembrolizumab in that group that you just described, that BCG um, group. And a lot of these patients were heavily pretreated, and um, they're selected for not having um, cystectomy, whether that was self-selection or physician selection. One or the other um, thought that it probably wasn't a great idea, and the trial was was a good idea. Um, and and there was a reasonable response um, to the the BCG, or I'm sorry, the um, pembrolizumab in, in those BCG unresponsive patients. And so, you know, this is part of our armamentarium now for the BCG unresponsive disease. Um, I think the thing that Sarah and I talk about often is what should the sequence be? So a patient gets BCG, um, and should they even be getting BCG up front now with BCG uh, on shortage? There's a lot of trials that are moving into this space that are looking at not using BCG up front. Um, so uh, there's some clinical trials uh, coming along like Duralumab and stuff like that that are using these immunotherapies in the first line. Um, so I think it's going to be really interesting over the next couple of years how this landscape might change. So I think, you know, practically speaking, one of the, the challenges is for those patients that are perhaps BCG unresponsive, um, how, just as urologists and urologic oncologists, how do you think about weighing the benefits of um, bladder preservation with, say, immunotherapy such as pembrolizumab versus, which has historically been our gold standard in urologic oncology, which is uh, radical cystectomy? And and maybe take me through the thought process of, of you know, those two and what do you maybe look at with regards to patients or, or how you sort of guide that discussion? I think that's a really tough, it's a tough discussion to have, right? Because you've had a patient who came in with consider uh, basically non-metastatic, non-invasive disease. You've been handling this patient, this 70% of our patients present this way. And I think that in general, we sort of, our, our goal is to keep the bladder inside you as as long as we possibly can in these patients. And many of these patients are very clear about that being a key quality indicator, a salient sort of priority for them. 
Um, I think one thing that we have always uh, really agreed on and, and talked a lot about is the fact that you need to start a discussion about the potential need for cystectomy early in these patients once you realize that you're dealing with a, a bladder, a non-muscle invasive bladder cancer that looks like it potentially is going to be unresponsive to ECG and we might eventually run out of options. If you have that discussion at the moment when that is your only option, it is a paradigm shift and a big shock for patients, and it generally is not met. It's not an easy conversation. But if you have forecasted early on, even at the time when the first time when you see that cancer has come back, non-muscle invasive bladder cancer has come back after a BCG and response, after a period of BCG treatment, at least you've introduced the topic and you've started the conversation. So I think that having sort of set the stage that if BCG doesn't work, and I, I actually say this at the beginning, I say we're dealing with, with high-risk non-muscle invasive bladder cancer, the cornerstone of our treatment here is BCG. If this doesn't work, we might do this again. If not, we have some other options, but if, it, if the tumor doesn't respond to this, the therapies that we can put in your bladder or these new immuno agents, we may have to discuss a surgery to remove your bladder even if the cancer hasn't gone into the muscle. So you start that conversation early so that at least people are comfortable with the, the, the terminology, maybe not comfortable, but at least I've heard it before and it's not a massive shock. And then I think that then it becomes a, a strong conversation around priorities. And this is where shared decision-making is so critical. And here we're weighing oncologic outcomes. We know that the safest way to, to get that patient's cancer under control is to take the bladder out. We know that the one-year complete response rates with pembrolizumab are pretty low, right? At three months, we had a complete response rate in just over a third of patients, but by one year, it's down to about 18%. With other intravascular chemotherapies, even at two years, it's around 40%. So if you want to give that patient the best possible shot of being cancer-free, radical cystectomy is the answer. And some patients are very responsive to that. If on the other hand, the, the, um, the decision-making is all around what can I do to preserve my bladder, then, then you start to have to have a real conversation about what, what those other treatments look like, what the side effect profiles look like, what the, what the recurrence rates look like, and then what other options we have if those things don't work. Yeah, so I, I think really good points, which is I think setting expectations early and then I think, as you alluded to, sort of understanding what, what the goal is uh, of that. I think those numbers you threw out are really important with regards to the durability of it. So it's almost like, what, what is the end game and what is the timeline? So maybe what I'm going to do now is ask Janet sort of a, a, a related question, but we're going to sort of work through a lot of scenarios that we see in practice. So now we, we started with the non-muscle invasive. And now you know, we, we move a little bit towards the muscle invasive setting. So these patients are clearly a muscle invasive bladder cancer. And we know for many years through either your SWOG trial or the cooperative group trial, the value of neoadjuvant chemotherapy in this setting. Um, can you take us through some of maybe the newer data or some trials that are looking at using um, these immunotherapy agents, either in isolation or in conjunction with conventional chemotherapy in the neoadjuvant setting for those with muscle invasive bladder cancer. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I think right now um, we're on the cusp of seeing a paradigm shift here. Um, 
I don't think we've seen the trials come out yet that are going to shift everything. Um, you know, to to date, everything that's compared, um, you know, cisplatin and uh, cisplatin-based chemo in, in general with immunotherapy has not really shown that it is going to be the absolute way to go. Um, one trial I, I do want to highlight, there is uh, a trial published in uh, Nature Medicine last year uh, that looked at perioperative nevo-ipi. Um, and the, it was a feasibility trial, but the primary endpoint was um, complete response. Uh, and 60% of, or I'm sorry, uh, almost 50% of patients had a complete response. Um, so that is, depending on what you read, 20 uh, 10 to 20% more than a complete response with uh, cisplatin. So when we talk about, you know, to patients, like what is the best thing you can tell a patient and, you know, where are we going, you know, with bladder preservation and stuff like that in the future? Well, the best thing I, I tell patients right now is that, you know, you could be part of that 30 to 40% with cisplatin-based chemotherapy that you have a complete response. It actually means that you're going to do awesome, usually 90% chance you're not going to have a recurrence of disease anywhere in your body. Well, you know, if we are upping that number to 50% and even more with other agents, uh, with combination agents, you know, stuff like that, um, you know, we're, we're really probably on the true cusp of talking about real bladder preservation after neoadjuvant. So it, it would be neoadjuvant treatment, but would it really be neoadjuvant? It would just, for some patients, just be treatment probably. And, and maybe, Sarah, a related question is, is do, do, do we look at these in isolation or do, do we look at it as immuno or chemo or, or what about, uh, if, especially if you're going for this sort of goal of bladder preservation and trying your best to generate maybe a, a P0 state, um, any thoughts on a combination of, of chemo with immunotherapy in this neoadjuvant setting? Well, there's a couple trials that are looking at that right now. I think um, the, um, uh, the right now there's a trial going on that's looking at neoadjuvant cisplatin-based chemotherapy with or without pembrolizumab. It's a placebo uh, blended trial that that actually is going to is endeavoring to answer that question specifically. Um, and I think that the question so here's right now, of course, the gold standard. The guidelines say that for so neoadjuvant chemotherapy is the standard of care prior to radical cystectomy for muscle invasive bladder cancer. That chemotherapy is cisplatin. If a patient is cis ineligible, then we say we should go straight to straight to surgery. And cisplatin ineligibility, unfortunately, is not that uncommon, right? Because we're dealing with patients, a lot of patients in our in our with the median age of diagnosis of 73, a lot of these patients are coming in with CKD, heart disease, severe hearing loss already, um, and other factors that make them cisplatin ineligible. So for patients who are cisplatin eligible, certainly these sort of additive trials that are looking at bringing immunotherapy into the chemotherapy space and saying, hey, can we even hit can we hit more home runs? Can we bump that 26 to 30 some odd percent of PCRs with chemo up into this 50% range? Um, I think that's that's very enticing, but we have a lot of patients who aren't gonna be able to get that. And so I think that the other 
exciting work is, is sort of what, what Janet highlighted, another big trial that I look to a lot of the times at the Pure One trial, um, which was which has some really interesting data, again, looking at three cycles of Pembro prior to cystectomy, again, really impressive PT0 rates, 42%, um, downstaging in 54%. And what was exciting in that trial is there's a, there's a nice response even in variant histology, which as we all know is an area of bladder cancer that a lot of us really wonder, are we helping patients or hurting patients by giving them neoadjuvant therapy? Because not all variant histologies respond to neoadjuvant cisplatin. So I think that, um, yes, there. to answer your question specifically, Jay, there's definitely interest in, in combina combination of classic chemotherapy plus um, uh, IO-based therapy. But I think that there's also a real role for developing and understanding the potential benefit of iotherapy on its own for patients who maybe can't get chemotherapy. So, um, you you brought you brought up some really good points, which is you know the the, the bladder cancer, or even you know globally the urothelial cancer population. This is uh, it's an older patient patient cohort or comorbid. Uh, they uh, often may have CKD, and and so we've talked about neoadjuvant, but but now let's talk about sort of the opposite end, which is uh, after cystectomy, where you have patients who perhaps have uh, T3 or greater disease, no positive disease, or even perhaps M1 disease, and and now we have the same patient population. And on top of all their baseline factors, now they're post-cystectomy. And, and we know that in some of these patients, unfortunately, their, their kidney function declines after a diversion or whether it's natural or whether it's you know obstructive in nature. So talk to me a little bit, uh, either of you, about how we can maybe leverage you know, IO therapy in that setting, in the adjuvant setting for these higher risk uh, bladder cancer patients after cystectomy. Yeah, um, I think within the last couple of weeks, actually, we've had nivolumab um, get FDA approval in this space for exactly that patient that you just described, that high-risk patient. Um, we have the uh, ambassador trial that has closed to accrual now that will hopefully read out in the next couple of years. Um, and then the, the other thing is, is that we're really learning a lot more about circulating tumor cells. Um, and, you know, there are patients that have no positive disease, but we know that, you know, urothelial cancer is somewhat unique in the sense that if they have positive nodes and you remove them, a lot of times you catch them before they, they go up the chain. A lot of times you don't. Um, but I think the circulating tumor cells may decrease the morbidity of needing extra um, therapy. But if they need it, they have positive circulating tumor cells. I think there's now options with the IO space for them to use. Yeah, and then even beyond that, there's there's other potential agents like the FGFR3 inhibitors, so we can you know obtain genetic testing on the primary tumors, understand the um, the percentage of the tumors that are are showing these specific mutations, and now we have some targeted drugs like um, uh, infligratinib and ertafitinib that may have some utility there. There's the PROOF 302 trial, which is going on that that we're all you know trying to get patients on the the proportion of patients with the mutations a little lower than we had kind of hoped to be able to enroll people on that trial. But I think that um, definitely for folks who are going to, uh, we think would do better with adjuvant 
therapy but aren't going to be candidates for, for either cisplatin or carboplatin. Um, you can look to the PAU trial for sort of the, the data that I think highlights the potential utility of adjuvant chemo. Now, I think that the point here is that we thankfully have FDA approval for frontline adjuvant immunotherapy. So you you brought up um, the the PAU trial and and uh, you know we spent a lot of time thus far talking about uh, bladder urothelial cancer, but but obviously when you look at upper tract disease, which is admittedly a much smaller cohort of patients, we we do indeed run into significant challenges with regards to the management of adjuvant therapy after uh, higher risk disease. And we know this from the kidney cancer literature, we, we, you know, the chronic kidney disease is well described. And so maybe I would start off for either of you just to educate our listeners on, on you know, at a baseline, the PAU trial and, and sort of the, the, the role of chemotherapy there. And maybe we'll talk a little bit about IO therapy after that. Sure. So um, the PAL trial looked at um, patients that had uh, node positive um, your upper tract urothelial cancer, or they were uh, T2 to T4. So it, it, we'll call it advanced um, urothelial cancer. And it looked at giving them therapy um, in a perioperative setting. So some were before, some were after. Um, and the interesting about thing about the PAL trial that hadn't really been done with upper tract in general um, and, and the look at carboplatin and cisplatin. Um, and the PAL trial allowed for carboplatin, which is much different than we think about for uh, for urothelial lower tract. And um, basically patients that had chemotherapy initiated, um, whether it was cisplatin or carboplatin within 90 days after surgery had a better disease-free survival. So this is the first trial that in upper tract disease demonstrated the application of the adjuvant therapy. I mean, we've been doing it based on bladder for a long time, but this is the first real clinical trial that said, hey, look, it actually works. So, so, you know, it's interesting that the, when you look at the PAU trial, the, the two things I would sort of think about are, and, and both of you can, you know, correct me if I'm thinking about it the, the right way or not, but the, the two observations I noticed was one, if the patients could get platinum-based chemotherapy and they could get the full course, uh, they did really well. I mean, that was like your best group. And then when you had those that got carbo versus cysts, they didn't do quite as well. And then there was a certain percentage when you look at their, their graphs that people would just fall off, right? They, they just, toxicity, they couldn't tolerate it. So maybe um, uh, Sarah or Janet, um, you know, in this unique setting where you, you clearly have potential benefit of adjuvant therapy, we know that upper tract disease node positive M1 disease is, is not going to end well without some type of adjuvant therapy. Do we extrapolate from the bladder literature? Um, do, we, do we sort of rely on what we know there and try to apply that to the upper tract cancers in these unique settings? Yeah, I mean, I think this is a great space for clinical trial enrollment. And so I've been really working to encourage patients. I, I have a fairly, um, at this point, robust upper tract practice. And when I see those ad adverse markers, high stage node involvement, I send them right to medical oncology. 
and I initially and went for the explicit purpose of discussing adjuvant therapy and looking at what clinical trials they're going to be candidates for. And every center is going to have a different clinical trial. And there are a number of trials that are looking at adjuvant immunotherapy um, in this space. So I think that this is just where I, I, I partner with my medocs. I say, I've got, a, I've got a nephew coming up. I'll let you know as soon as I see the path. I'm worried about this patient. I'm going to get them to you as soon as I can. I try to get them through the recovery. But basically, we I, and I, I let patients know before surgery, my anticipation is post-op, once we get the path, we're going to be talking about what comes next. This is not just a surgery-only treatment paradigm. So I think, again, expectation setting, letting people know that this is a multi, we're not talking, we're, we think, let's, I mean, let's be frank, right? Like urothelial carcinoma is a, it's an adversary that none of us really like. Um, and it's unfortunately, the, the outcomes are not great. We are moving the needle, but we know that as surgeons alone, we can't do that. We have to involve our partners in medical oncology and possibly radiation oncology as well. So I think, again, setting the stage early and letting patients know once we get that path back, we're going to be talking. If we see any of these features, I'm, you know, when I, when Ambassador was open, we, we were enrolling heavily on Ambassador. Once that closed, you know, we're talking about extrapolating whether or not there's a role for the NEMO data or else bringing, uh, trying to get patients onto PROOF 302. Um, I think it's it's pretty much a do not pass go, head straight to medical oncology. Um, but again, letting patients know that that's that's just the next step in treatment. So, one one of the things I think is challenging for most urologists um, and and practitioners, and and even maybe some urologic oncologists is. Um, you have these patients that come in who have clear metastatic disease. And, um, you know, the reflexive, I think, response for most is, okay, metastatic disease, we need to have UCR medical oncologist, which is wholly appropriate. But maybe educate our listeners a little bit on um, what should we be doing? I mean, we, we will often see these patients as a starting point. Right, right. Whether they come with hematuria, whether you're doing the diagnostic algorithm, they funnel through the urology practices. What should we be comfortable with understanding so we can start that cascade? Or at least what should we know as urologists about this landscape? So when we have these tumor boards or in these discussions, we're, we're not sort of sitting on the sidelines there, but we are engaged in this process. So I know it's a big question to unpack there, but, but I'm going to throw it out to both of you. So... I, I think um, a couple of things. So I, I think you're right. We are almost always have contact with these patients. These patients don't just show up at our door. Like we're usually involved in the workup or uh, we get the referral and somewhere in between when they saw the other urologist and they saw us, they've gotten a CT scan of their chest or, you know, whatever. They have a nodule, um, you know, stuff like that. We're, we're almost always part of this. And um, I think with everything we've talked about today, the the thing with these patients that have metastatic disease is that they are not necessarily looking at the same horrible outcomes that we used to think of. Um, you know, not all of these patients are going to die, and some of these patients will have good responses to uh, immunotherapy. That some have good responses to um, chemo and then move on to maintenance immunotherapy with you know possibly. Um, you know, uh, some of those trials that have just come out. So, um, you know, for patients with good performance statuses, I have started staying involved in their care. Um, and I have a 
couple, I have three patients in the next couple of months that have been stable on treatment, no progression, had a good initial response that I'm taking for consolidative surgery. Um, that's part of the NCCN guidelines. And I think it's something that we're going to be doing a lot more of in the future. Yeah, especially if patients can demonstrate that not only so that they were, so we're talking, these these patients that Janet's speaking about are pretty specific and, and they're patients we didn't used to see, but they're patients who get through induction chemo. So usually this is, you know, NCCN guidelines, first line still is cisplatin-based chemotherapy, either gem, gemcitamine, cisplatin, or dose-dense-MVAC. But then go on, for example, so they get through that therapy, they don't have progression, they have another period of uh, several weeks where they don't have any evidence of progression and have a treatment-free period. And then they go on maintenance of Elamab, which is now standard of care you know, after chemotherapy in either of those frontline settings for cis-eligible patients. I think it's a really fair point. I mean, if we can get them through and they don't have any evidence, uh, they have the CR, then the question is, especially if there is ongoing I mean, it, it, one of the issues is, of course, the role for sort of palliative surgery in these patients who are symptomatic from like a bleeding renal mass or something like that. But I think it's going to be really interesting to see what the role is for, for consolidation in those patients. They have to be right now very carefully selected, right? Because these patients generally are still, they're going to be people who are, you're going to be evaluating their performance status and their roles of care and their, and their um, sort of comorbidity profile and their competing risks for surgery. But I, I do think the paradigm is going to change. The other thing is we have a lot more lines of therapy now than we used to have. It used to be very straightforward, chemotherapy and then other types of chemotherapy, and then we ran out of chemotherapy. Um, and by the time people got to second or third line, we were talking about survival on the order of something like three to seven months. The difference is now there's chemotherapy, IO-based therapy, and then we have these payload drugs like Enfortimab. We have novel agents, um, Cezatuzumab, you know, just got approved with the trophy study. I think that they give us other lines. Now these patients are on therapy indefinitely as they're, they're going through these lines of therapy, but we have more options. And so I think it, I, I, and I'm, I'm like Janet, I mean, I stay in touch with these patients because sometimes, sometimes we're doing things like we're maintaining patency of their ureter and keeping st doing stent changes and things like that. So we're interacting with them. You're gonna, and we're gonna see the side effects of the therapies and we're gonna be having to sort of interact. So I think, it's, I think it's important to be familiar with the landscape, which is changing quickly, but at least having under idea, an idea of where patients are kind of along that, that treatment now timeline and sort of what's where they're kind of at in their, in their progression of treatments. I think the palliative thing that you mentioned too, Sarah, is really important. Um, you know, some of the massive complete responses to IO um, in multiple organs, and specifically the bladder, um, they just get like this massive necrosis of the bladder um, and develop fistulas. So really keeping an eye on these patients for these later side effects when they've had these really good responses, I think is really important. And I'm glad you mentioned that. Yeah. From a quality of life perspective, sometimes I think it's critical. I completely agree with you. Yeah. So sort of a, a, an offhand question for both of you, which is, so we all practice at academic medical centers and the paradigm is that uh, patients like this who are getting IO therapy, um, will often engage with our medical oncology colleagues. But if you look at, you know, the advanced prostate cancer 
landscape, and, and we're much further along with advanced prostate cancer, uh, that has very much permeated into many urology practices, particularly those that are not in, in, in larger academic medical centers. Sort of a question for both of you is, do, do you see this being part of uh, where the future will be for urothelial cancer? And maybe the related question is, therefore, do we as urologists need to be prepared to manage not just giving the treatment, but obviously all the associated sequelae of that? Yes. Yes, we do. Um, so that's, a, that's a short answer. The long answer is, is that um, as we see more and more things come into this space, so like this is a rapidly exploding space and there's like a couple clinical trials that are looking at these IO therapies upfront with or without BCG, novel options for um, urothelial cancer. So the, a lot of this is going to, to I think, be a big uptake for us um, in general. I don't know if like the super niche academic practices like ours are gonna be like that, but I think community practice, um, this is gonna be a, a thing. Um, immunotherapy is so easy to give. Um, it doesn't have like a lot of the same restrictions that chemo does. Like it doesn't really need like the same hood for mixing and, and all that stuff. So using it in a community office is much easier than, for example, giving gemcitabine and dosetaxel in, intravesically. Um, so I think for a lot of reasons, we should be prepared to see this. And, um, you know, the adverse side effects are real. Um, and, but I mean, we're all physicians. And for a long time, we said, oh, we're not comfortable. We're not comfortable. We're going to keep, you know, bringing in medical oncology because we're not comfortable managing these things. But, you know, giving a steroid burst and making sure that your nurses know that, you know, a lot of blood in the stool is not a good thing are not super hard. Um, and I think it's all reasonable for us to practice that way um, in the future. And to some degree, that's already happening. I think a lot of practices are already giving pembrolizumab for BCG unresponsive bladder cancer and developing the expertise in developing um, immune-related adverse event um, sort of expertise in handling those adverse events. I think we have to be uh, pretty straightforward with patients and upfront about the fact that the, these side effect profiles are real. So they're somewhere between 15 and 30% of patients are going to have a grade three or greater adverse event with these immunodrugs, depending if you, if you look at some of the metastatic papers, rates are up to 50%. Death rate is around 1%, but that's real. And that, so as we, as we administer these drugs, we do have to understand that while they are a lot easier to give than say conventional cytotoxic chemotherapy, they're, they're definitely, we're gonna have to develop that comfort understanding in managing these side effect profiles and making sure that we have sort of availability, staff availability to kind of, um, uh, to, to, to handle that appropriately. But as Janet said, it's coming. And I think it's one of those things that we're going to have to become much more facile with. And I think it's going to help our patients because it does, it is nice for patients to kind of have the ability, especially maybe not in these big academic practices where we're all co-located, but it's a lot, it's, it's nice for patients to be able to have their point person who's comfortable doing a lot of this work. So um, it's, it's, 
pretty, it's changing pretty quickly, but you know, prostate was changing pretty quickly about a decade ago or so. And, and, and obviously we, we adapted. And so it's just a question I think of, of doing the training, developing the infrastructure, developing the staff, developing the comfort with the side effect profiles. And then again, as always, I know I harp on this, but I think it's just so important, you know, expectation setting and, and being really careful about how we educate patients, what to look out for even so that they know that if they get a fever, it may not be a cold or a flu may be a side effect of the treatment that they're getting and they should be contacting us as well as their PCP who may not know that this is actually a burgeoning immune response. Great. Well, I, I really want to, first of all, uh, thank our audience. Um, I especially want to thank uh, both uh, Drs. Kukreja as well as Sutka for uh, their thoughtfulness, their expertise. Um, for our audience, for any more information, please visit us at auanet.org university. And uh, certainly Janet and Sarah, thank you so much. Uh, uh, I really enjoyed the conversation and, and, and just the way how you both think about the disease process there. So thank you again for your time. Thanks very much, Janet. Thank you.